Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you to Zoe Community Church. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Maybe you saw me on the website. Pretty cool, pretty fancy. Um, but even if you're not new, we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. Uh, I, I've said this a lot recently, but I feel like it needs to be said just because, you know, there's a lot of visitors and, and the church has been growing a little bit, that we really strive to be a simple church. We just want to keep the main things, the main things, prayer and the worship of God and uh, fellowship. So if you're new, we really encourage you to stick around just a little bit afterwards. Uh, we don't necessarily want anything from you except to get to know you and to be able to have the chance to greet you. Um, we have uh, refreshments after service in the fellowship hall so that we could fellowship. It's kind of in the name. And uh, if you're not new, can you stick around so you can greet the people that I just said we would greet? That would really help. Thank you. Another thing, too, is we just want to preach the word. Um, and maybe we don't have like the most creative sermon series or anything like that. We just open up the Bible. We go through books verse by verse, and we just try to explain and kind of bring to bring to uh, our own hearts what God has for us in his word. And right now we're in 2 Samuel. So if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? Turn to 2 Samuel. We're in chapter 13. We're finishing up this chapter that we started last week. And uh, last week, if you were here, you know I had this like 40-minute disclaimer that was as long as the entire sermon. Um, the reason why I did that was because of the subject matter of the text last week. I won't do that this week. But I will just say this. That the thing about expository preaching where you just go through the Bible is that you go to wherever is next. Wherever God wants you to go, that's where you end up. And sometimes you end up in passages that are a little intense. Maybe I wouldn't choose it for like a topical one-off sermon or something like that. But because we're making our way through Second Samuel, we go to the next thing. And this section, this whole section actually that has to do with Absalom, David's son, I'll just warn you now, it's all intense, okay? It's going to be a little bit more maybe emotionally heavy and uh, personal than some of the other texts in the Bible or even in this book, but the Holy Spirit inspired these chapters, and in the providence of God, this is where we are right now. So if this is your first time and you're like, whoa, okay, is this what we talk about every week? Not every week, but for the next few weeks, probably. So just letting you know. Second Samuel 13. We're going to be in verses 22 through 39, uh, but as we've been doing the past uh, few weeks, we're not going to read the whole thing up front. Instead, we're going to let the story unfold for us as we make our way through it. So let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Sound good? Okay, let me pray. Father, we're thankful for this time that we can come before you and open up your word and hear from you. And God, we know, Father, that we are not perfect people. There are many ways in which we struggle. There are many sins in which we don't know how to deal with them, how to put them away. But God, we come to your word, not just for conviction, God, but for hope. Hope that we can be saved and hope that we can change. And God, I pray that as we come to a hard text like this, God, I pray for one, for me, that I would be able to preach faithfully preach the truth, even though you know, God, that I don't live these things perfectly. And I pray for all of us, God, that we would be able to humble ourselves, that we would be able to see maybe places that you want to show us in our own hearts where we fall short. And I pray, God, that you would help us. 
God, I pray that you would do a work through your word that only you can do, that you would grow our faith, that you would make us more like Christ. I pray that we would leave different people by your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever felt like someone shouldn't be allowed to get away with it? Maybe you were watching something on TV and you saw some horrible true crime and you said, I really hope this guy went away for life. Or maybe it was something a little bit more personal at work. Someone lied or someone embezzled money and it it affected all of you and you knew that justice had to be done. That's what you wished for. Or maybe it was something even more personal. Maybe someone hurt one of your kids, maybe a bully at school or something like that. Or maybe it was something even more serious. In the 70s, Marietta Yeager's seven-year-old daughter, Susie, was kidnapped. They were camping in Montana. So you never think that someone would kidnap your kid from your tent, but that's exactly what happened. It was a nightmare scenario, as you can imagine. No one knew exactly how it happened. There were no suspects. One day they had their daughter, and the next day she was gone. As a mother, Marietta felt every emotion possible, right? Sadness, shock that this could happen. But the main emotion that she felt was anger. Her heart was filled with hate for whoever did this, whoever could do this to their little girl and to their family. And she said later on, if she could have, she would have put her bare hands on this person and killed them or killed him or her herself. And she would smile. That's how much the rage and hate had consumed her. The people around her did nothing to stop the runaway train of anger in her heart. In fact, they encouraged it. They would say things like, only an inhuman monster could do something like this. Whoever did this to you doesn't deserve to live. She was in a bad place, again, as you can imagine. But then a year later, to the day that Susie was kidnapped, the phone rang. And on the other end of the line was the kidnapper. Now, we'll come back to this later, but let me ask you, if you were Marietta Yeager, if you were her, if you were this mother, if you could put yourself in her shoes, and the phone rang, and it was that person that you had been thinking about for an entire year, what would you say? Or what would you do? And what could you do? And most importantly, for our purposes today, since this is an imaginary scenario for us, for us today, where do you think your heart would go? Like, what are you feeling right now? Where would your heart go in response to this person who has hurt you so badly on the other end of the line? Now, I hope this never happens to anyone here. I mean, that is literally like the worst case scenario for any parent, God forbid. But the truth is, since Genesis chapter 3, we live in a fallen world. And we've talked about this a lot. That means that we are all sinners and we pull no punches in talking about how we are all sinners. Every week, if you forget, I will remind you that you are a sinner. I'm surprised that our church grew this big considering that I talk about it all the time. But today, that's not our focus necessarily. Yes, we are all sinners, but the fact that we live in a fallen world means that everyone else that we encounter is a sinner as well. The parents that raised us, the family that we share a home with, the people that we work with at work, the people in this sanctuary, and the strangers that move in and out of our lives every single day. It's unavoidable. 
There's no way to move back out of the splash zone. You will be sinned against in this life. People will talk bad about you. Supposed friends will let you down. And if you really pursue being the church, as I mentioned earlier, you know, fellowship, uh, fellowshipping with people, getting to know people in the church, opening up your life to other Christians, you're opening up your life to getting hurt. And the question for us today, if we could summarize it, is what in the world are we supposed to do about that? Now, maybe you say, Jesse, I've been around church for a while. It's easy. Just trust God. Be gracious. Forgive. Let's just close in prayer right now. Save me the next 50 minutes. I know how long you speak. If you spend time around Christianity, it's true. You know that that's kind of our thing, right? Forgiveness, that we are the people who have been forgiven. So as God and Christ forgave us, we will forgive others as well. And I'm not downplaying that. And yet on the ground, it's not that easy, is it? I mean, if we just look at the reality for a second, that's the theory, that's what's ideal. But if you just look at real life, I mean, think about the broken families. Think about the split churches. Think about the burned bridges. Think about loved ones that you know that have all these relational problems. They have grudges. They're consumed by bitterness and anger and thoughts of getting even. And then think about yourself. And are there people in your life that you honestly never want to see again? Are there people in your life where if you could put out your hands on them and hurt them in some way, you're not sure if you could stop yourself? It's not easy. And don't get me wrong, again, I'm not downplaying the express command of Scripture, but what I am saying is that even the strongest Christians, and I know this because I've heard it as a pastor, the strongest Christians I've met, they still have a hard time with this in real life because how could we live with ourselves if we just let that person get away with that? And so we come to the second half of 2 Samuel 13. I told you it's going to be a little bit more serious. I like to joke a little bit usually, but I feel like it's just not as appropriate as usual. We come to the second half of 2 Samuel 13, which is just maybe a little less heavy than the first half. In the first half last week, Amnon, the firstborn son of David, violated his half-sister Tamar. He said he loved her, but it was nothing but a perversion of love. It was a sick form of lust, and it cost Tamar everything. After this, she had to live as a desolate woman in her brother's house. And David, when he heard of this, he was rightly angry as the man after God's own heart, as the king, as her father. But as we talked about last week, what did he do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing happened from David. And so it was Absalom, Tamar's full brother, and David's third son who took Tamar in and took care of her. It was Absalom who comforted her, and it was Absalom who buried the rage against Amnon and his sin deep within his own heart. And here in the second half of chapter 13, what we're going to see is what Absalom does. And let me just say it right out the gate. This is a warning for us. So let's get into it. We'll look at this text in three parts. Three acts first, the revenge. The revenge. Which is about what often happens in response to sin. Verse 23, look at the text. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Now, 
If you look at the text, notice that it emphasizes how long it's been. It's been two full years since all that stuff happened with Amnon and Tamar. And a lot can happen in two years. I mean, even if you think about your own life right now, think about where we were a little over two years ago. I mean, think about how different things are if you go all the way back, rewind a little bit to February 2020. It was a different world. A lot can happen. Two years is a while. And think about what has happened for these people. Two years have gone by where David, who had ample opportunity to do something, did nothing. Two years then have gone by where Amnon thinks, understandably by now, that he's untouchable. He's David's favorite. He can do the worst thing in David's house, and yet nothing bad will happen to him in response. And then two years where Absalom has been turning this over in his mind. I mean, you can picture it, right? Like he's living his life. He sees Amnon walking by without a care in the world, no consequences. He goes home. He sees Tamar, his sister, whom he loves, and she is a desolate woman. Her future is ruined. He's reminded of this every day. And can you imagine how he feels when David tries to talk to him as a father figure? Two years. See, what's going to happen has been brewing for two full years. But if you look at the rest of verse 23, on the surface to a casual observer who might not know all the backstory, everything seems like it's all right because it tells us that Absalom had sheep shearers. Now for us, it's like, what is that? What does that have to do with anything? Well, let me explain. In the early spring months when the weather got nice, if you had sheep, then you would shear them. Okay, you would cut off the wool and you would use the wool for yourself. And if you had a lot of sheep, you would make it an occasion. You get all your sheep together, you get your friends, you do the sheep shearing, and it would be really fun. And then you might kill a lamb or two and you would eat it and you'd throw a party and kind of make it like a nice festive occasion. You know, the weather is nice. We're going to get together. It's going to be great. We'd celebrate, have a good time. And so Absalom, the text is telling us, is going to do this. He's going to throw a party. He has sheep shearers at Baal Hazor. And Baal Hazor, we don't know exactly where that is today, but it says it's near Ephraim. And in the New Testament, we actually read of Jesus staying at Ephraim or near Ephraim during the winter. He kind of spends the winter there. So at best, or maybe even at worst, what we can understand about this area is that it's a nice place to get away. So it's, it's pretty nice what Absalom is doing. I mean, he's throwing a party. He's booked a nice Airbnb near Ephraim. He's inviting all the king's sons. It's going to be a great time. And it seems, keyword seems, like things are finally getting back to normal. Maybe we can put all of that behind us. But verse 24, Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. So Absalom personally goes to invite David. And when I first read this, I thought it was a nice gesture. I thought that maybe he still had some affection for his heart for David, that he was giving him one last chance to be a good father. But notice he says, please let the king and his servants go. And David had a lot of servants as the king. Basically what Absalom is saying is, let's just all go, dad. Right? Just bring everybody, right? Who cares about the kingdom? Uh, just bring everyone from the palace. The truth is there's no way that this can happen. You can't just leave the palace. You can't bring all your servants. Who's going to run the, the ship? It's an invitation, understand, that's designed to be declined. Verse 25. But the king predictably said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. So he's even like, you can't even handle all these people. Absalom pressed him, but he would not go 
but gave him his blessing. So David refuses, but it's not that he doesn't want to go. It's just not feasible. He gives him his blessing, meaning, I hope you have a great time. I wish I could be there. And that's that, except verse 26, it was all a setup. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. This was the play. He wants Amnon to come to the party. Now, what do we read at the end of last week's passage? For two full years, he didn't speak to Amnon, good or bad. Not at all. He hated him in his heart. So there's been no radio communication. It's all been silent. You know that there's a problem between these two guys. Now he specifically wants Amnon to come to his party. I mean, you might hope that things are going to be better, but there's still a sneaking suspicion. And David does suspect that something might be off Look at verse 26 again. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom was smart. He invited David first. He got his father's blessing on this party. And because David already declined, he's now in a position where it'd be even more of a letdown to keep Amnon from going. I mean, I kind of wonder here if there's a little guilt at play too within David. I mean, you understand that he is guilty. I mean, maybe he feels bad that he is a father who plays favorites, that he's shown his favoritism toward Amnon. Maybe he feels bad to even suspect Absalom, his son. I mean, Absalom hasn't said that he's going to do anything bad. You can imagine his inner dialogue. Absalom's just trying to throw a party. I mean, what am I, I'm just going to suspect him now. I mean, that just shows that I'm favoriting or showing favor to Amnon after I already declined. I can't refuse him. I mean, he's in a trap. David is suspicious, but there's nothing he can really do without coming off like a jerk and a bad father. And Absalom doesn't give up, verse 27, but Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Come on, dad. All the king's sons are going. Come on, I don't ask you for a whole lot. Can you just let Amnon come with us? What's the big deal? So David signs off on Amnon's attendance and everything is going according to plan. And you say, Jesse, what plan? Well, let me tell you a story. And you might know this story. But in the novel, The Count of Monte Cristo, maybe you saw the movie, or maybe you read the book, it's really long. But in The Count of Monte Cristo, a young man named Dantes has everything going for him in life. Do you guys know this this story? I'll just tell you the gist of it, the Spark Notes version. He has everything going for him in life. He's a young guy. He's 19. He's about to become the captain uh, captain of his own ship. He's engaged to the love of his life, this beautiful uh, girl named Mercedes. Everything is going great. The problem is his blessings turn out to be curses because his friends are jealous of his success. One of his friends is jealous that he is a young captain, that he has his own ship. Another one of his friends loves Mercedes and wants her for himself. And another friend is just jealous that he lives a charmed life. So they band together and they falsely accuse him of a crime. And he gets convicted and sent to jail for life. He's 19 years old. Now in prison, he meets a man who tells him of a treasure. And when he manages to escape, spoiler alert, but this book was written like 200 years ago, something like that. When he manages to escape, he finds that treasure And he uses the money to reinvent himself as the Count of Monte Cristo. He becomes a different person. But instead of, you know, moving away to to enjoy his life of luxury and, and riches and comfort, just thankful that he's out of prison, he goes back to where he's from. And he uses his newfound wealth and power 
to get back at his supposed friends who ruined his life. And it's not just that he wants to get back. He wants to get even. His friend who is jealous of his success, Dante's bankrupts him. He steals all his possessions back. I mean, not illegally, but he makes sure that he loses everything. He even hires a robber to rob him of the last money that he has. His friend who married Mercedes, who took his fiance from him, he exposes his darkest secrets in public, humiliating him. He makes it so that his family splits up how his daughter doesn't even want to be associated with her father anymore. Dante's revenge, the Count of Monte Cristo's revenge, understand, it's poetic. It rhymes. You ruined my life in this way, and I'll ruin your life in the same way. You ruin my family life, I'll ruin your family life. You took away my success, I will take away your success. It's a cruel poetry. And I bring this up because Absalom's revenge, see, is the same way. If you look at verse 28, then I'll explain. Then Absalom commanded his servant. After he got Amnon to go, then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So Absalom's plan, if we didn't know it already, it snaps into focus. He's going to kill his brother. And while Amnon didn't kill Tamar, remember, after the incident happened, what did Tamar do? She mourned as if it were a funeral. Yeah, she wasn't physically killed, but her future was. Everything that she dreamt of was. The Tamar who was supposed to get married and who was a princess and who was supposed to be able to live in a palace with a king or something like that now has nothing. That Tamar is dead. And it's not just revenge on Amnon, see? It's revenge on David too. Because last week, what did we see? It's not that Amnon just waited in an alley somewhere and, and, and surprised Tamar. No, he had this plot and he involved who in that plot? their father, David. He got David to send Tamar. David, none the wiser, blinded by his favoritism for his firstborn, he got him to send Tamar to his room. She lowered her guard because her father is the one who sent her. So what does Absalom do? You can see how the plot is unfolding. You can see the rhyme scheme. Absalom doesn't wait in an alley for Amnon to walk by. No, Absalom gets David to send Amnon to his death. It's a cruel poem. The revenge rhymes. Now, let me ask you before we move on. How do you respond when someone sins against you or against someone that you love? What is your response? Is there a cruel poetry to it? We have to start here. We have to start with What's really in our hearts? We got to bring that before the Lord. What do you usually do? Like when someone insults you, let's say. Is your gut reaction to insult back? Someone talks bad about your mom and you say, well, your mom is whatever. And it's a silly example. But you can see how that is exactly how it works usually. Someone hurts you and you look at the exact same way and you return the favor. Think about it. Do you have a truthful view of yourself? Do you tend to fight fire with fire? If someone disrespects you, 
If someone disrespects you in an obvious way, do you now go out of your way to show how little you respect him? If someone gossips about you and it comes back to you, is your first response to start texting and calling and making sure that everyone knows about her now? As we've quoted so many times during our study of the books of Samuel, the word of God isn't just a window so we can look at other people and their drama and their failings. It's a mirror. It's just like a mirror so that we can see our own reflection. So this is where we need to start. Let me ask you, when you look at this text, do you even, can you even just see a little, just a little bit? Can you see your reflection in Absalom's anger? Do you see shades of your own grudges in this hatred? Can you see some of your bitterness in his revenge? And I preached to myself. I mean, I spent all week looking at this text. And as I studied it, as I had to write a sermon on it and get ready to teach you guys about it, it was like God was showing me what's really in here. I was looking at Absalom, but then at the end of it, I realized I don't look that different. No excuses, just facts. This is where it starts with us. Have you done this? Do you do this? Do you get even? I think we all do to a certain extent. And this is why it's so important that we unpack this. This leads to the second point. The reason. The reason. Before we talk about how bad it is or anything like that, let's, let's just follow Absalom here. Let's follow his train of thought. The reason. He has a reason for why he does this. And this point is about the elephant in the room. Sin deserves punishment. It does. So this is really about how justified our actions can seem when there is legitimate evil on the other end. Verse 28. Go back to verse 28. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. Now, I don't know how often you read the Old Testament uh, for quiet times or anything like that, but if you know your Bible and you know the book of Joshua, these words are super familiar. And these are famous verses. You might have seen like a, like a thing at a Christian bookstore where they have this verse, like a piece of wood for 40 bucks or whatever. Joshua 1.9. When Joshua had just taken over from Moses, the greatest leader in Israel's history, the Lord God said something to him to encourage him when he went into the promised land. And this is what he said. He said, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Now, coincidence? I don't think so. See, why this is included in 2 Samuel 13 is to let us know that Absalom, he knows the stories of Israel's history. He knows about the conquest of the promised land. He knows about what God did through Joshua. And this is letting us know that he sees what he's doing here as something just like that. What he sees here is, is that he is doing something that is holy and just and good. The words he says are the exact same words used for Joshua's taking of Canaan. Guys, understand that we're being, a gl- or we're being given a glimpse of Absalom's heart right here. The first thing we got to see is that Absalom doesn't see this as vengeance or cold-blooded murder. He doesn't see it as bitterness that is unprovoked. He sees this as justice. And this is the elephant in the room, right? 
Because what did Amnon do? He assaulted Tamar, his own sister. He faced exactly zero consequences. Absalom gave it two years for David the king to do something, the supposed man after God's own heart, and he did nothing. So what? So what? What is he going to do? What is, what is Absalom supposed to do? Amnon just going to get away with it? He can just smile and laugh and party and then become the next king? I mean, we can understand Absalom's thought process here, right? I feel like I can understand it 100%. Think about what Amnon did. And if you skip down to verse 32, end of the verse, it says, For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he, Amnon, violated uh, his sister Tamar. So if you talk to Absalom, he would be like, think about what he did. That's all I can think about. For two years, that's all I have thought about. I could think of nothing else. And see, this is where I think we can kind of fall step in step with Absalom. Just let yourself kind of go there for a second. I mean, isn't this what we do? When someone wrongs us, don't we turn it over and over in our minds? Don't we remember? Don't we build a case? Don't we put a magnifying glass over every detail of their crimes? And then don't we find Bible verses to match? This is clearly wrong. This is evil. They deserve to pay, aren't their punishments for sin? You know, during that year of waiting, going back to the original story, when Marietta Yeager didn't know who kidnapped her daughter, uh, she was really in a bad place. She let that hate just run away like a train in her heart, and it was just consuming her. I mean, it got so bad for their family that her husband started getting these ulcers just from the stress and the anger. But then after a while, after a few months, she realized she couldn't go on like that. Her husband was having bad health. She felt like she was changing. And for the sake of her, her own kids, and if she ever got Susie back, she didn't want to be this way. She didn't want to be so consumed with hate and rage. And I don't know if she's a Christian or not, but she said a big part of it was she felt like God didn't want her to be that way either. So she tried to put it away. She started actually feeling better over time, but then the call came. And because she was in a better frame of mind, she was able to talk to this guy without losing it. And because she was able to talk calmly and even to understand him a little bit and just to listen patiently, he opened up and he talked to her for an hour and it gave them time to track down his location. So they knew where he was. They didn't know what happened to Susie. They didn't even know if he did it per se, but they knew where he was. They sent her to go talk to him because he seemed to have some kind of connection with her. And she went to go talk to him. She confronted him at his house, of course, with backup. And he confessed to kidnapping and to murder. It was too late. See, it's one thing to try to let go of anger when you don't know for sure what's on the other end. It's one thing to try to forgive or to try to put away that rage or need for vengeance when you're not sure if this person is guilty. But when that person confesses, when you know that they are guilty for sure, 100%, it's a different matter. See, you know what's interesting is that Bible commentators all have different thoughts when it comes to Absalom. I read a lot of commentaries, and it's in this section where they start going off in all these different directions because they, they kind of want to psychoanalyze Absalom, I think, a little bit. I think people read themselves into Absalom's story. But if you don't know, Absalom, after, after this, it just goes from bad to worse. He tries to take over the kingdom by guile and by violence. And, you know, there are reasons for that. I'm not excusing him in any way. But some people read that back into it. 
They'll say things like, well, Ab- Absalom clearly is a bad guy. Right? That's why he's so violent. I mean, that's why he tries to kill Amnon. Someone even said that, who knows, maybe Absalom wanted his sister to get assaulted because it was a way for him to seize power. But if you read the text, just a verse at a time, that's not in here. See, it's not that he had a plot. It's not that he was trying to take over. Yes, he's a sinner. Yes, maybe he did want to become king eventually. What prince wouldn't want that? But the express reason given to us in the text for why he does what he does is simple. Look at verse 22 again. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because because he had violated his sister Tamar. It's not about greed, not primarily. It's not about ambition. It says because he had violated his sister Tamar. It honestly starts with love for his sister. I mean, later on we read that Absalom has a daughter and he names her Tamar. See, even his hate for Amnon comes from a, from a desire to protect and avenge someone that he cares about. So, what I'm trying to do here is trying to get you to feel for Absalom a little bit. Because I think the text kind of wants us to understand where he's coming from. It's giving us these details. So can you understand him? Can you understand him? See, if anyone, the reality is, if anyone in Scripture is justified in getting revenge, I'm not saying revenge is justified, okay? But if anyone was justified in getting revenge, can you name someone more justified than Absalom? Bible trivia, go look it up. Keep reading, verse 29. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded, Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Mules were kind of a luxury animal in those days. It's like they got in their Lambos, Ferraris, and they peeled off. It's almost anticlimactic, though. Half a verse. They just did it. Amnon's dead. And the moment that Absalom must have pictured in his head a thousand times over two years is just done. Verse 30. And while they're on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all the servants who were standing by tore their garments. So David hears the erroneous news, the fake news, that all his sons are dead, and he's overcome with emotion. I mean, he falls on the ground. He tears his clothes. His life is ruined. But here's the question. Think about it. Where did this news come from? Well, you turn on the TV and saw it. It's not like you had the internet. You couldn't text someone. Where did the news come from? If the sons had showed up who had fled, then that would obviously prove that it's not true, right? Like some of them are still alive. So where did this rumor come from? Well, look at verse 32. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. Now, follow with me now, okay? We're going to go into a rabbit hole here, but I will try to bring us out of it. Who is Jonadab? Who is Jonadab? He is David's nephew, the cousin of both Amnon and Absalom. And we saw him earlier this chapter where he was described as a quote-unquote crafty man. Verse 3. 
He's the one who gave Amnon the plan to get Tamar into his room alone, if you remember. So the situation wouldn't have happened without Jonadab and his wicked encouragement. Now, somehow, Jonadab knows that only Amnon is dead, even though he wasn't there, and no one's shown up yet to give a full report. And not only that, he knows why Absalom did it, and maybe he's guessing, but he's right. So, put two and two together, how do you think this could be unless Jonadab had heard from Absalom before? He's a guy who is crafty. He's playing both sides. He's a confidant of both Amnon and Absalom. He doesn't care if one of them kills the other. He was the one who was supposedly boys with Amnon, and yet what we see here is that he knows the intimate details of Absalom's secret plan. So if you look at the events in sequence, I mean, it starts to become obvious. Who do you think would want to start the rumor that all the king's sons are dead? Who would possibly be in the know enough to manipulate the situation like this? There's only one person, really, that there could be. It's Jonadab, that snake. And I use that term purposefully because we talked about this last week a little bit, but not a lot of people are described as crafty in the scripture, but there is one notable person who shows up early on in the Bible. So even if you didn't make it all the way to the end, you probably read about this person. He was the craftiest of the crafty. He was the serpent in the garden, the snake, Satan. See, the word crafty, it's a negative spin on wisdom. Someone who has been given so many gifts by God, but instead of using them for good, uses them for evil. Satan is the epitome of that, and we see shades of that in Jonadab. Now, I'm not saying that Jonadab is Satan or anything like that. I'm not trying to read into the text. However, the language used to describe him and the actions that are recorded, what are they but not Satan-like? In fact, turn with me to Ephesians 4. You got to see this. This was our scripture reading, so hopefully you remember. Keep your place in 2 Samuel. But go to Ephesians 4, New Testament. Ephesians 4, look at verse 26. The Apostle Paul, okay, I'll give you a second. Here's some turning. Ephesians 4, 26. The Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Popular marriage advice, don't go to bed angry. But the question is why, verse 27, and give no opportunity to the who? To the devil. It's not sinful to be angry. Do you see that distinction? Be angry and do not sin. Anger is a justified response to sin. However, Paul knows that the danger is that anger, even justified anger, can easily be pushed can easily, excuse me, push us to the precipice of sinning ourselves. Our anger puts us in a precarious position. It puts us in a dangerous spot. It's why he says, don't hold on to it. It's why he says, deal with it before the day is done. You don't want to stay there because you're vulnerable. See, an angry heart is an opportunity for Satan. Let me say it again. An angry heart is an opportunity for Satan. And this makes perfect sense because, do you know what the name Satan means? It doesn't mean devil. 
The word Satan means accuser. It means accuser. He is the one that accuses us. He tempts us to despair. He tells us of how sinful we are. But think about it the other way. When someone wrongs us, and we start, you know, thinking about how wrong they are, how bad they are, who do you think would love that if we just condemn them in our hearts and try to get revenge? The accuser. And when we're angry, he doesn't need a lot to push us over the edge, does he? Back to Second Samuel. Second Samuel. <clears throat> Go back to our text. When someone wrongs us, we just keep thinking about it. We put a mental magnifying glass over every detail of what happened. We build a case in our minds. But here's the kicker. When it is actual undeniable sin that occurs, it's super hard for us to not feel justified in whatever actions we take in response. Absalom felt justified in killing his brother. And who was in his ear most likely? Jonadab, the crafty man. And David too was confronted with the reality of his failures. He lost one son and lost the heart of another. Why? Because he failed to act because he didn't do anything. And who let him know that this was the case? Who accused him indirectly? It was Jonadab, the crafty man. It was because of Tamar, because Am wasn't held accountable. That's why this happened to you, David. See, Satan doesn't have to possess us to have a presence in our lives. Do you see that? Satan doesn't have to possess us to seize the opportunities that we give him with our anger. And what he does is he simply just blows on the flame a little bit and he fans it up. Our indignation becomes a wildfire of, of self-righteousness. He accuses and accuses and accuses some more. Don't you see what he did? Can't let that go. Didn't you hear what she said to you? You're not going to respond to that? Make him pay. It's a sin, isn't it? Look in the Bible. That's not God's word. That's the whisper of Satan. And by justifying us in our own heads, he pushes us over the edge and we do the very same thing they were guilty of, sometimes worth, because here's the truth. According to the Torah, according to the law, if you look it up, incest is wrong and rape is an egregious sin, but neither of them merit the death penalty. According to the Torah, we must love our neighbor, our friends, our family as ourselves. He must love Tamar as himself. But this doesn't mean it's okay to hate his brother for hurting her. See, the difference between justice and vengeance is that justice does it God's way. But vengeance is Satan's way. Vengeance is about making them pay. Justice is about doing what's right. And this leads to the last point quickly now, the result, the result, which is about what happens when we fall over the edge. There's a story that I read recently about these two guys. They were both in the hospital with serious illness. And one of them was in a bed right near the window and another one was in a bed near the door. And they both were really sick, probably not going to get out. The guy near the window, he had some lung issue and every, uh, every afternoon for an hour or so, they would let him kind of sit him up. They would sit him up in the bed, let him kind of sit up and look out the window while the fluid would drain from his lungs. The other guy couldn't even get up at all. So day after day, you know, they became friends. They talked. They were kind of in it together. The guy near the window would describe everything that he saw out the window to the guy who couldn't see out of it. So you talk about the park that was outside the hospital. 
talk about the lake. You'd talk about the ducks and the swans and the kids who'd come and bring their boats. You'd talk about a parade that went by one day, the people who would just walk on. He'd talk about the conversations that he'd heard. And the guy who was near the door started to really live for this, right? He had nothing else going on. But then one day he had a thought. He said, why is it that I need to stay by the door and this other guy gets to look out the window all the time? And that thought, he just couldn't get it out of his mind. So every day now when they started talking about the stuff outside of the window, even though he was thankful for it on the one hand, on the other hand, he was kind of envious and he felt like this is wrong, this isn't right. And then one night, the man by the window started to cough really bad. He was struggling. He was trying to hit the button to call the nurse. He needed help. And the bitter man by the door could have pressed the button on his own bed, got a nurse to come in. But in a moment of weakness, he decided, I'm not going to do it. So he didn't press the button. And the next morning, the nurses came in to find that the man by the window had passed away. Now, after an appropriate length of time, the guy near the door asked to be moved closer to the window. The nurses happily obliged. They said, well, of course, you know, you've been here for so long. Of course, we'll move you near the window. And when he got there, he painfully and slowly forced himself up on his elbow just to get a look at the lake and the people passing by. But when he looked out the window, it faced a blank wall. For two full years, understand, Absalom wanted nothing else than to kill Amnon. That's all he could think about. He's going to kill Amnon. He's going to make him pay. Finally, Amnon is dead. But now what? Verse 34, but Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, behold, the king's sons have come. As your servant said, so it has come about. I mean, you can see what he's doing. He's trying to ingratiate himself with the king now. Verse 36. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. So, yeah, it's not as bad as originally thought. But David is torn up because the crown prince Amnon, his favorite son, is dead. And Absalom, another son whom he loves, is on the run. I mean, everyone is weeping and crying. This is a tragedy. David's house is in shambles. The sword has come just as Nathan prophesied. Verse 37, but, and this is repeated, but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom runs away out of Israel to his maternal grandfather, He's out of Israel's jurisdiction. He's seeking asylum. And it says that David mourned for his son. The question is, which son? Hold that thought. Verse 38. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. Three times it says that Absalom fled. And the text is beating us over the head with the results of Absalom's revenge. He has nowhere to go. Regardless of the reason, things aren't better. In fact, they're worse. Absalom has to run away because he is now guilty of murder because this wasn't a just punishment. He actually deserves death now, so he leaves. But that brings up the question, now what about Tamar? He's the only one helping her. Supposedly this was for her, but now he's in exile for three years. Who's going to take care of Tamar? This doesn't help her in the end. And now look at David. All it says is that he wept bitterly. He loves his sons, both of them, all of them. And the rest of them weep bitterly too. Absalom's actions hurt his family deeply. 
And isn't this, if you could just take a step back for a second, isn't this how it started? I mean, didn't this start with someone hurting a family member? Isn't that why Absalom is so angry in the first place? Because someone hurt his sister. Now he's hurting his father and every single one of his brothers. He even killed his brother. Make no mistake. Okay, what we're seeing here is that when you give into hatred, you'll become what you hated in the first place. And maybe we think, okay, I hate nobody. I'm not a hater. I'm a lover. Understand when you fight fire with fire, no matter what kind of sin it is, there's no way you won't get burned yourself. I've seen it. I've seen people who are zealous for the truth in the church, zealous for the word of God. And that's a good thing. And they want to fight error and people who don't care about the Bible in the church. And to a certain extent, we need to do that. But then they get so caught up in it. They start ignoring verses that talk about divisiveness and the right way to go about things. They become Pharisees, blowing up churches, disobeying the very same word of God they sought to protect in the first place. Do you see how you become what you hate? I've seen people return grudge for grudge. Well, if you're going to be mad over this little thing, then I'm never going to talk to you again. Grow up and then we'll deal with it. And 20 years later, you're still holding that grudge against them for that little thing. And you can't remember why you were mad in the first place. We become what we hated in the beginning. Revenge always has bad fruit. And what we see with Absalom is that we're the ones who bear it. Absalom takes decisive action. His enemy is dead. And all it leads to is a dead end. There's no park out there. There's no parade. It's just a wall. So what are we to do? Well, last verse in this text, the hardest verse, verse 39. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now, you might read that and have a certain thought about what it means. But if you look at it in the Hebrew, it's really difficult to translate notoriously difficult. And if you start going on like Bible gateway and you compare translations, you see that a lot of English translations translated differently. And the main reason for this, I won't get into all of it, but the basic issue is it's not totally clear if David feels positively or negatively toward these guys. Like it says he wants to go out. The spirit of him wants to go out to Absalom, but it's not totally clear in Hebrew if this is positive, like he, he longs to be reconciled or if he wants to go out and bring him back to punish him. So what's the answer, right? It's ambiguous in the Hebrew. The ESV tends to lean toward he wants to reconcile. But what is the answer? Well, I don't think the Hebrew text is difficult to conf- uh, difficult just to confuse us. I don't think it's supposed to be unclear. Rather, I think it's difficult. I think it's ambiguous in the sense to reflect the turmoil within David. I think it actually is both. I don't think he can decide what he wants to do. What the text is telling us is that he has conflict in his own heart. Because on the one hand, he doesn't want to lose another son. Absalom is the next in line because the second son is never spoken of again. He probably died when he was young. So it goes Amnon, second son who's gone, Absalom. He is the heir now. And he knows that Amnon, even if he didn't deserve the death penalty, he did mess up really badly. He deserves something. And he failed to give that punishment. There is guilt here. There are certain feelings of failure that David has. But on the other hand, he knows he shouldn't make the same mistake again. I mean, if he had just done something the first time, then maybe this wouldn't have happened. So he knows that maybe I should do something to Absalom. I need to discipline him. 
And this tension with Absalom goes on for the rest of Absalom's life. David never can decide. He can never figure out how to handle this rightly. David uh, pushes him away when he does come back. He keeps him at arm's length. But then when Absalom does die, which he did deserve, David is heartbroken and he can't contain his grief. So what I'm saying is, this ends with a verse that says that David just doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to do. Part of him wants to let it go, but he knows that it's wrong to do that. Part of him wants to punish the sin, but he knows that he would be a hypocrite to do so. So where does that leave us? Kind of leaves us with a hopeless note. Revenge ruins us, but how can we let people get away with it? That seems to lead to worse things. Well, I don't know if you noticed this, but this entire chapter doesn't mention God one time. I talked about it last week, but if you go all the way to verse 39, God is not mentioned. Yahweh's name never appears. It's not that God isn't there. It's not that God doesn't exist. It's just that they're not thinking about him at all. It is impossible if this is how it's going to be without God. It is hopeless. But the question we need to ask as we close is, what about if God is there? Turn with me to Romans 12. We'll read this and then we'll close. Romans chapter 12. This is Paul again. Romans 12. Look at verse 17. This is what we're supposed to do. Romans 12 verse 17. Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How can he say this? Because of verse 19, the wrath of God. Go back to our first question. How can we let someone get away with it? Well, if God is real and scripture is true, no one gets away with it. No one gets away with anything. You can trust that. And Christian, you must know this because of the wrath of God, we can have salvation. The wrath of God is at the heart of who we are. Do we not hold that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God? Do we not confess that the wages of sin, even if we were sinned against first, the wages of our sin that we commit, regardless of the reason that they merit death, is it not written that on account of these, and you can list it, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. See, to be a Christian, understand, is to know, is to know in our own hearts that this is true about us, that we deserve the wrath of God if we're honest, but God made a way for us to be saved. That the God of wrath is the God who is love. And it's stories like this in 2 Samuel 13 that highlight just how different and beautiful and powerful the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ is. I said it last week, but Jesus is a son of David. He is the son of David. But when he, 
was reviled and wronged, he did not revile or wrong in return. No, he resisted Satan at every turn, and he alone lived a life. He alone lived a life that merited grace and forgiveness. And maybe you say you can't deserve grace, but he alone didn't deserve death. He was perfect. And then he died for sinners like you and me, dying on the cross, uh, bearing our guilt, taking upon himself the wrath that we deserve. No one gets away with it. Everyone pays for their sin or by grace through faith. Jesus pays it for them. And this is what we believe. This is Christianity 101. It's not easy, but it's possible. You and I, we can put away bitterness. We can put away malice and slander. We can finally forgive. Not because we're letting it go and letting people get away with it, but because we know God and we know that God in Christ has forgiven us. It might feel impossible, and the truth is, without God it is, but with God all things are possible. Let me finish with the story. The kidnapper's name was David Mirhofer. After he confessed, he was arrested, and he actually committed suicide in jail. So there really wasn't a satisfying conclusion to this whole thing. And given that he confessed to what he did, it would have been understandable for Marietta to abandon the course of forgiveness, but she knew it wouldn't bring her Susie back. So instead, what she did was she sought out David Mirhofer's mother and they visited the graves of their children together. And again, I don't know if she's a Christian, but she talks about God. And really, I can't see any other explanation for how this could happen. Years later, what she said was, if you remain vindictive, You give the offender another victim. Anger, hatred, and resentment, they would have taken my life as surely as Susie's life was taken. And that is exactly it. Satan would want nothing more than than to twist our righteous anger against sin into something that is sinful itself, to cause us to think we could take God's place, to steal vengeance, which rightly belongs to him for ourselves. But that's not what God calls us to do. That's not what God sent Jesus to die for. Yes, we live in a fallen world, but we have been given the gift of new life in the death of the innocent, true son of David. And again, I preach to myself because pastors are some of the most resentful people that I've ever met. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. Evil doesn't have to win. Evil doesn't have to win. You can overcome evil with good by the grace you have received. So what will it be? What will it be for you? Can we let go of bitterness in our hearts today? Can we entrust our deepest resentments to God, knowing that he will take care of it? Either that person will be forgiven because of the blood of Christ or they will pay. Can we be different than Absalom, the son of David, and be like Jesus, the son of David? I pray that we will. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, you know our hearts. You know how we fall short. You know me. So God, we look to you and know that even though we deserve something terrible, you have given us grace and mercy and forgiveness. And God, I pray that that would move us. I pray that the sight of Jesus on the cross where you proved yourself 
to be both just and the justifier. I pray that it would change us and transform us. And I pray, God, that we would be a people that can let go of bitterness and put away malice and slander and grudges. God, I pray that you would help us to be a people of forgiveness. And I pray that you would sustain us. We look to you. We can't do it on our own. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.